0: Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com too many captains productions.
2: Find us at a movie on Spotify, Apple
1: Podcasts, and Google Play. And now, here comes a new episode of Collateral Cinema.
0: I'm Beau Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. I'm Ashley Chancellor.
3: This is Lydia Malcolm. This is Naomi McQuaid.
0: And I'm Jen McQuaid from Shocked and Applaud. And this is Collateral Cinema. <laughs>
4: Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from somewhere in South Texas, and yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast. So whatever you have, be it dabs, blunts, bongs, or joints, smoke it if you've got it. And everybody, we are returning to a perennial favorite of ours, Mr. David Lynch, right, Robert?
2: Yes, we are. Yeah. This is our second Lynch film, right?
4: Yeah, it is our second Lynch film. And it's quite possibly one of the more interesting movies, I would even say more accessible. And before we reveal what the movie is, we'll go ahead and allow our guests to introduce themselves. And we have Shocked and Applaud with us. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hello.
3: I'm the ineffable Naomi McQuaid from Shocked and Applaud.
0: I'm Jen McQuaid, the producer and audio editor.
5: And this is Lydia Malcolm, just another person who's talking about movies on the internet.
0: Excellent. Excellent.
4: And just go ahead and give us like just a general breakdown of what your show is about.
0: Yeah, I, I would categorize it as one of uh, the only show that takes longer to talk about the movie than the movie runs itself.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Every- every time
0: <laughs> oh wow <laughs> a full month to the review of our films and we try to get as much dialogue and factual stuff in there as well we've got a couple of fact checkers that Excellent. help us out as well and then uh, I don't know we try to relate it to other experiences that we've had in our own lives and uh, just have a lot of fun with yeah,
3: it yeah like we acknowledge the experience that we've had with a film betwixt the three of us. And then, because that is hardly enough, we we end each month with shock talk between our dear, 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 uh, dear, dear, dear friends, Sean and Maddie, who uh, fix the things that we got wrong. Uh-oh. But also, <laughs> like, add, I mean, like, really. And then they throw in, like, our our reviews of our podcasts and their own thoughts and feelings about the experience. And it just rounds out like the whole month of the experience. I would say
4: that is really an interesting angle to take for a movie podcast. That that sounds really interesting. And the movie that we are doing today is what I would say, like I said earlier, one of David Lynch's more accessible movies. I kind of feel like it's, a little more straightforward, I would say. It, it, it's Mulholland Drive. Mm. It came out, I believe, in 2002, right? 2001, I think.
3: 2001, yeah, one I think, it is.
4: Yeah. And it's one of those movies that, I mean, it's quintessentially 2000s, but because of the way that uh, David Lynch actually filmed it, it really evokes kind of a golden Hollywood vibe to it. I mean, and I think that that was very uh, intentional on his part. I guess we'll go ahead and... Open with just some general thoughts about uh, Mulholland Drive. We'll go ahead and start with Shocked and Applaud. What do y'all think about this movie so far? Just your first initial thoughts.
5: Okay. So this is Lydia, by the way. I'm just a little bit like, I watched this yesterday for the very first time, always kind of like got glimpses of it, but I never quite knew what the movie itself was about, even from those like, even from like cultural osmosis. So when I watched it the first time, I was like, I'm not making heads or tails of this at all. And so I like immediately went to YouTube and was like, someone has to found an explanation for this. Tell me what you think. And so um, that was actually by a random YouTuber that I had never seen before, like, searching up what the hell is Mulholland Drive about, but it was more like, you know, okay, so this is something that can be open to interpretation depending on what you mean. But I really did like, uh, this YouTuber's uh, interpretation about it. And it really kind of put the movie into context for me as far as plot goes, because I'm, I'm someone who, if I watch a movie, I like to actually see a story unfold. And I don't think that's necessarily something that David Lynch likes to do because he likes to kind of evoke emotions more than plot um he likes to evoke themes and like let you see what the character is more than he is he's not very plot heavy or if he is not very like you know very straightforward plot i guess is what i would say
4: yeah i kind of get what you're saying I mean, I'll go ahead and go to Ash on this one. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that this movie is straightforward or not, especially compared to what you saw in Eraserhead, Ash?
1: Well, like Lydia, I just watched this yesterday for the first time. And this was honestly one of my earliest experiences with David Lynch. So I also just watched Eraserhead in preparation for this podcast because I know that was the episode that y'all had done right before I jumped on the podcast. So I wanted to kind of compare and contrast that because the only other David Lynch thing I had seen prior to any of this was Dune, which, you know, obviously isn't even David Lynch's original work, but rather an adaptation. But I'm definitely noticing the surrealist qualities that are present in all three of those movies and comparing and contrasting this with Eraserhead, um, I think I would agree that it's definitely more accessible. Uh, it's definitely a movie that would um, appeal to a more modern audience being that it was, you know, made in 2001 uh, and it does kind of get into the Hollywood culture. Not only that, but it's not nearly as crazy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> most of the and drive seems to be fairly, I mean, for at least two thirds of the movie, most of it seems to make sense. Like it seems to be uh, realistic, you know, it seems to be like some, you know, the shit is really going on, despite, you know, other than, of course, the fact that we've got some disconnected, you know, uh, parts of the narrative that don't really not really sure where to place them in. But then, you know, by the end of the movie, that's all put into context and the whole thing turns upside down and you start to wonder, you know, what's real and what's not mm-hmm. And, and that's, what's crazy, you know, is, is, you know, what is this movie is, are, are there parts of it that are dream, which is, you know, obviously the more popular interpretation, or is this some kind of Mobius strip where everything goes around in a loop? It's not clear. And what I thought was interesting was to see how many different interpretations there were about this, because there's definitely a logical interpretation, right? But there is also... You know, just just there's so much more ambiguity to it. And even David Lynch has kept his lips sealed about
4: that. Yeah. Well, As he's wont to do. I mean, that's kind of a common thing with David Lynch. He absolutely does not want to really let anyone know what he's actually trying to do with his work. Yeah. Uh Robert, Grounded. What, Grounded
1: is the word I would say to compare this versus what's more grounded it's, than, than Eraserhead is,
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, um, I think no matter how many times you see it, something like this, a David Lynch film, or even The Shining, it's kind of like you're seeing it for the first time. By the way, th- this is my third David Lynch film I've ever seen, and, <laughs> you know, Eraserhead was something new to me. That was something that kind of like took seven years for him to make. And it just blew your mind. It was kind of like you were watching The Twilight Zone or some sort of a Rod Serling story. You know, I don't know.
4: I would say that it's probably a little more penetrating than The Twilight Zone. Yeah. But I, I kind of get what you're going at there because you know, I mean, there there is always kind of a moral to the Twilight Zone's yeah. uh, like writing and everything, like, like where it always ends up
2: at. Exactly. But the second film, Lost Highway, I mean, I've watched that twice, just probably as much as um, Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I've only seen Mulholland Drive like three times, and you still don't know what to expect every time you go into this, you know what I mean? David Lynch has got something up his sleeve every time, you know? Yeah. Well,
4: what's interesting about Mulholland Drive is that initially he was going to make this a television series, much in the same vein as Twin Peaks. What do y'all think this would have been like as a TV series? Would it have ended the same way that it did? Would it have had different, you know, uh, segues into different story arcs? I mean, what would it have been like?
3: You guys, look, (laughs) I hate to step in. This is Naomi from Shocked and Applaud, Like, having to put my toes into your kiddie pool. Okay. When I look at where this movie begins i'm like oh there's a femme fatale type who makes it out alive and then she falls asleep in a bush but okay we'll set that aside for a second and then there's some guys who are like sheriff detective types and they're like actually securing off a a crime scene for once as opposed to letting like Reporters or random citizens wander through as one might like I was like, oh, they might figure this business out. Like they don't do anything with that. And it screams to the fact that this movie was going to be a series in what gen other half of my brain?
0: 99.
3: Thank you very much. <laughs> um thank you very much to she. She is very like we were gonna like cut it off and like let it go and be like "Mm, let's pick it up with some officers and some like detailing and let's go after this business and they didn't do any of that they were like "Mm, here's a crime scene and i was like that's a pretty good that's a pretty good crime scene for a um i i happen to consider myself like a true crime enthusiast yeah. like a my favorite murderer follower like yeah let's like <laughs> trump against some stuff let's do it and then i never heard any of it ever again for the entire movie <laughs> i was very angry <laughs> about it like <laughs> it- they could have followed some people. I assure you, they would track. They would have tracked them down, like no less than like sixty percent through the movie. They've been like, "Um, ma'am, it seems as if you've put out a hit on some people, <laughs> and we don't that, and so you're going to have to come into custody." And you would be like, "I'm very much a girl cocaine, and I can't come into this."
6: So- <laughs> and they've been
3: like, what? "In a." in of itself is unacceptable so perhaps you come into custody <laughs> yes, man, like it would have been done like we wouldn't uh, like as much as they approve of two hours and 20 minutes of a film we would have been done an hour and 35 minutes
4: so do so you kind of feel like it could have used maybe a little trimming around on the time and everything and, and maybe a little more of an emphasis on like a police procedural kind of thing
3: I mean I love okay and you can yell at me about this but I love non sequitur um psychedelic bullshit oh okay I don't mind it I don't mind it at all but if you're gonna give me linear crime procedure you're gonna have to give it to me in a respectable and reasonable way and this movie gave me
6: neither
4: and it's interesting because what you're describing is pretty much what Twin Peaks is. That is David Lynch's police procedural, as far as, you know, his overall style and everything. But, I mean, yeah, that would have been interesting to actually meet the policemen that were investigating all of that. Like, What do you think, Robert?
2: I still have no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah Robert's
4: know- a little mind-fucked by this movie, I guess.
1: Aren't we all? But. I want to say, you know, going off of, if this were a TV series, I can actually kind of see where some of that is going, because like I said, especially in the beginning, in the first third of the movie, we've got a lot of these disconnected fragments, all of these different storylines that don't seem to coherently make sense, which obviously if this is all a dream, then that makes a lot of sense. But I, I think that that would have worked really well as a TV series because you could have had each of these storylines as independent episodes. Right. Yeah. And so what you yeah, would have seen yeah. in the very few, few first few episodes was, these seem to have nothing to do with each other. These are disconnected storylines, and then it all comes together by the end of the season. So I, I could definitely see where where that could have gone.
2: Nothing but cliffhangers, right, leading to exactly other, other stories. And, exactly, and then some of
1: those storylines go nowhere. They're left open ended on purpose, you know. Like you were saying, there, there are some some plot threads that are opened. And then they don't finish it off. And and I guess, obviously, I, I think on Lynch's part, that is intentional, you know, for, for better or for worse on, on the audience's part. But, yeah, I, I, it was definitely very interesting. It's an interesting style.
4: Yeah. I mean. Can
3: I, I just. I will yell at you for just a second. <laughs> okay. <because sure. laughs> I appreciate all of your voices, but you will never, ever, till the end of time. Tell me that the it was all a dream scenario is an acceptable ending for anything. Agreed. I mean, give me one and I will give you credence. But oh, my God, I cannot think of one.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Typically, it is kind of a sketchy trope to use. Um, And it's only been used to full effect a few times, I would say. I'll give me one. That's all I'm asking for, uh, friend. One. Naomi mm. here at Shocker
3: Applaud. give me one time that it was 100% acceptable.
1: Mm. I, I honestly feel like this movie does it well because it's not like the entire thing was all a dream, just the first two-thirds of the movie. And all of the that, that entire dream is essentially Diane's uh, wishful thinking and her, you know, what she envisions and what goes through her mind in a different way of telling the story to us, the audience prior to her suicide at the end of the film. So yeah. for me, I, I think it didn't, it didn't raise a red flag as a, Oh, this is all the dream trope, you know, cause usually that, that is kind of a garbage. It, it's, it's been done too much, but I, I do like the way it was implemented here and that, you know, not the entire thing was a dream, but just the first two thirds of the movie and it actually feels like a dream. And when you're watching it, you don't quite realize it until you look at it in retrospect.
4: Yeah. I've got a movie that probably fits that criteria audition by Takashi Miike. I would argue that that is where the dream trope is kind of used to full effect
3: well, oh yeah, flesh it <laughs> out for me because I don't know that one
1: it was the pilot episode it was
4: yeah audition by Takashi Mike it's uh this one movie producer he does an audition to try to find himself a wife He becomes enamored by this one lady named Asami, and it doesn't turn out particularly well for him, needless to say. It kind of descends into an absolute nightmare. But I would say that that's a movie where the actual sequence that looks like a dream, it kind of makes sense that it would be working that way because it's pretty obvious that the main character is knocked out with a drug or something. So he could be hallucinating all of that while he's sleeping.
2: It's like a lucid dream. Like, Yeah. I thought this this movie reminded me of two movies. I thought it was like a fight club scenario happening yeah. mixed yeah. with Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky I want to know seen you
1: want to know a film that does it right Killing Night.
4: Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Look that up on YouTube.
2: That's that's Robert's <laughs> movie by the way. And Ash's editing. Ash's and editing. We all did it. But yeah,
4: I kind of feel like the open-ended structure of this movie—it was really influenced by the fact that this was a pilot that was rejected. You know, I mean, it's it's plainly obvious. But let's go ahead and get into the actual first half of the movie, which is purportedly the actual dream sequence here.
1: You say first half, but it's more like the first two thirds, or, or maybe even <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Is it not the first three quarters of the film, guys? Three
2: quarters, maybe. Yeah, it's like two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm.
0: I, mean, I would argue that if they did try to make it a half and half kind of thing that we might feel more like these are parallel stories that are being told separately. I am yeah. super
3: feeling like I'm watching three or four um, uh, different movies. N- n- mm. No, um, parallel, parallel
5: Universes. Yeah, yeah, but it's a uh.
3: show called don't
0: know mm. um Gen
3: sliders are you sliders. <laughs> like talking
0: about sliders <laughs> or No,
3: it's like twilight zone. Hey, I, I got there. Okay, look, it feels like we're watching three or four probably two or three
5: twilight zone episodes, but they're all just kind of like mixed together. Yeah,
3: like here you are, here you are, and here you are. Mm-hmm. But where are you? And it makes me so mad because I am so easily confused and very, very gullible.
4: Oh, okay. <laughs>
3: and they threw it all in one movie and was like, here, have a two and a half hours of your life and then like figure it out. And I was like, I need scratch paper and some thought and I don't have either. I, I really... <laughs> I, I felt that way after
1: watching it. I was kind of like, well, hold, hold on a second. Let me rewatch that entire thing over again with, with context. <laughs> Cause let, let me figure out, okay, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And then over time, the more you think about it and the more, you know, I kind of did some researching online, looking at Reddit and, and, and this other website that had a bunch of stuff compiled together and, and pe- pieces of it start making sense. And I'm like, Oh, well, this means that and that, okay. But again, that's all just interpretation. There's not even one necessarily, true interpretation if you don't like the it was all a dream trope you don't have to apply that here you don't have to you know i mean there's different interpretations of this movie that don't involve it being a dream that's just the most popular one and the one that seems most obvious no go ahead
3: yeah yeah but like lydia watched a youtube video that seemed to oh my god video hitting i'm sorry (laughs) audio hitting it's my super skill okay But Lydia watched a video that, like, lined up, like, so many of the different things that you'd like to dismiss or, like, ignore, but then, like, and that's the Lynch thing about it. And if I were to hang him from a tree, it would be what I did. But, like, uh, like all these specific tiny things, and maybe she can highlight a few of them, but, like, she she had a few that she brought forth to me that was, like, oh... Of course, because I would be like, no, no, let's dismiss that. I don't give a lot of credence to a ashtray, but <laughs> apparently Lynch does.
4: Well, I mean, the movie and, starts with uh, him with a pillow, pretty much. Like uh, the, 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 the story proper.
1: The ashtray is interesting because that is one thing I picked up on the first time I was watching it. Because the ashtray in particular was used to place the scene. Yeah. So you see the, the ashtray go away and then you and then and then the next thing, the ashtray's there. And so you think and you're placing it in your head and you're like, oh, so this happened before this is in the past. And it helps you place the timeline in the movie. And I just thought that that was a really clever and, and subtle way of doing that. Because everything, even at the end, is, is, you know, the end of the movie is completely non linear. And that's actually the real part of the, you know, the the, the the part of the film that supposedly actually happened, what Bo calls the second half, you know, or like the, first, the last third, fourth of the movie, right? Yeah. And, and that's the part that's most jumbled. It is completely non linear because what we're seeing is, I guess, flashbacks. And maybe Diane is reminiscing.
3: Okay. But guys, but twixt you and I, the last four. Of the movie can live on an island somewhere adjacent to where we are now but there are so many things that we could look at at the main island Island, I would say Oahu of the <laughs> islands that we're looking at and Lydia has so many ideas about it and I want to hear
5: them
4: okay. yeah yeah that'd be interesting like what, what, what are these ideas about that that sounds very interesting
5: Okay, well, going back to the fact that this was a pilot for a TV show, have any of you seen Paranoia Agent, the anime?
4: I love Paranoia Agent. Yeah, that's a fantastic anime.
5: And it's great. But it would have sucked as a movie because of all of the different elements. And here's the thing in that in that show, it's pretty much it's very episodic. So every episode deals with a very specific character. So but I think that the ultimate like benefit to this being a show is that it would have been very much like. Twin Peaks I'm assuming I've never actually seen Twin Peaks where it is a police procedural but then the whole big thing at the end is the fact that maybe this isn't so much maybe this isn't necessarily reality but this is actually a dream and I I think it would have probably knowing how successful that, uh, that David Lynch was with Twin Peaks I would almost say that having this a tv show would have probably made it a lot more successful like plot wise and it probably would have been like a lot more enjoyable for someone like me so not not to say that the movie was inherently bad the acting is incredible naomi watts is just a phenomenal actress and i love her in everything yeah. Um. It's just. I, I guess it's more of a preference thing. My preference for a movie is something that does have linear uh, storytelling. Or like, have you ever seen the movie Memento?
4: <gasps> you know what? I haven't seen that. Honestly.
5: Okay. Yeah. Look. 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 If not a garbage person <laughs> in
3: high school has not sat you down and been like, hey. We're going to watch this. Look, I'm going to set a sharpie next to you. It doesn't mean anything. And my mom might walk through at an even moment, but we're just watching Memento. And then you're just like,
5: huh? yeah, but that had actual, like the the progression of that was still relatively linear. It seemed to make sense. There was a rhythm to it. In this, it doesn't feel like there's a rhythm. It feels like, it, it feels, maybe it's just so avant-garde that I just, I, I really have a hard time no, getting no, into just, it.
3: Lydia, it's garbage. <laughs> like, I want to like Memento, but unless you have a sketchbook and a care for being a middle-aged man <laughs> in like 2000, and we're not there anymore, you don't have to. I give you full carp launch. You don't I have to care about memento. I wasn't talking about memento. (laughs) I was talking about mall and drive. Sorry. sorry. No, no, you have
2: to care (laughs) about
3: mall drive, but you don't have to care about memento.
7: (laughs) Oh wow!
0: So,
5: so Jen, do you have any thoughts that you would like to share?
0: (laughs) I think that it's unfortunate that this came out in 2001 because Netflix really hadn't hit their stride with online storytelling yet.
4: Yeah, yeah. This
0: could have been a one-off, one-season show pretty easily. And I, I, I think that there's like this trifecta of David directors out there. It's got David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Cronenberg, Cronenberg yeah. Yeah. and uh, David Fincher and between these three davids they tell some pretty strange stories but this one like if uh, this one is as accessible as something like 7 is whereas like eraserhead is like existence of the cronenberg stories yeah. like there's yeah. there are different levels for how how manipulative the director is going to be to the audience and this one kind of hits in the middle It's he'll allow you to believe that it's just a, you know, a stream of consciousness or that all of these are just dead ends in plots. And he doesn't really he wants you to look step back from uh, believing that the plot is the most important part of a story and have you believe that the themes are important, that the characters are what they're feeling is more important. And he'll he'll kind of lead you into believing more that this is film as art.
4: Lynch has always been a very emotional filmmaker. I mean, even going all the way back to Eraserhead, I mean, you know, the common accepted theory about Eraserhead is that that's because of his anxieties about his upcoming parenthood and everything. So that does seem to hold water. But another thing that I kind of feel about this movie is that it's kind of David Lynch's love letter to the golden era of Hollywood. Because, I mean... For one, you know, Rita, she, she gets her name from Rita Hayworth. I mean, you see a Gilda poster in the apartment. And a lot of the cinematography to me kind of evokes that. It's it's maybe just a few color gradings away from being technicolor almost.
3: Okay, look, a lot of this film. Naomi here. Hey, what's up? Yeah, hello. <laughs> a lot of this film looks like garbage. But if you want to talk to someone who has an associate in arts degree. Right on. Hey, what's up? I'm here. Hey. I graduated graduated, graduated college that one time. Okay, we'll bring it down. Look, hey, children, also applauders or future applauders or guys who are here. I look at the background of a film a lot of the time. I can't help myself because there's an art director. There's someone who is setting the scene. There is someone who yeah, is like...
2: Yeah. Cinematography tells a story by itself. Yeah. yeah,
3: and you knew that he threw some fucking money at this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, between, what was it, $9 million the first time and then like $7 million the second time? Yeah. Like, he did not not throw money at this film because we are like, it is literally like room to room. And so without trying to like scrunch it down, like cellophane, like it is pretty significant. The settings of each room that we're in. And I don't want to put too much thought onto it. Right. But one of the themes that I liked was that, like, the first scene with the detectives was like, did those teenagers have a pearl earring? And I was like, I doubt it. And I was like, girl with a pearl earring. And are you guys nerds enough?
4: Girl with a pearl earring? I don't think I've seen that yet. I haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah.
3: So there's a super fucking famous painting of a girl with a pearl earring.
2: believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place.
7: This one comes highly recommended. Dream place?
6: What are you doing?
7: Get out of the car.
0: Yes. The girl is still missing.
6: What's wrong? I don't know who I am.
4: I wonder where you were going. and oh, drive.
0: Come on, it'll be just like in the movies.
2: We'll pretend to be someone else.
7: Silencio. This is all an illusion. You want
6: to know who you are, don't you?
0: Where's this going? It's been a very strange day. Getting stranger.
3: Silencio. But okay, so it's a it's actually a servant who had her hair done up in a protective wrap who was white presenting and as much as you wanna work with that, she had one pearl earring. Right? Oh, that was Vermeer, right? I have no fucking clue, friend. (laughs) But I I know enough. (laughs) there's a super famous painting called The Girl with the Pearl Earring, right? But the actual painting that they reference is, oh my god, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, with all of your asses, hold on. (laughs) I, I, I paused it on... Something that I was looking at earlier, and Jen knows what I'm talking about, and she's super mad that I don't know what I'm talking about. I think
0: that we should kind of loop back to you.
3: You cannot <laughs> because it is the portrait of hey,
0: we could take it all out in post, right? right.
3: Feel, feel free that's all I've ever given uh, Jen the agenda to do. There is the portrait of Beatrice. Sensi. Hmm. are you familiar i doubt it because i looked it up today
4: probably not <laughs> okay. I, i've never heard of that name. Mm-hmm.
3: okay so her father-in-law or somebody beat the crap out of her and so she stabbed him to death and he deserved
6: it oh nice wow.
3: right can't disagree that shit is reasonable so what happens is they say oh do you think any of the other dead kids had a pearl earring and the guy's like i don't think so (laughs) right right then they pan into the apartment that naomi watts betty character goes into and she's like i don't know anything about this place and then they pan past this portrait that's easily mistaken for girl with a pearl earring but it's actually beatrice sensensi who was Killed because her father-in-law or some such person tried to kill her. And then she was like, no, no, thanks. And then she's killed him.
4: Wow. (laughs) Damn. Yeah.
3: Because it's all about the difference between committing a sin and being like, are you responsible for the thing you did? Because it was obviously evil. Or... Within the context of circumstances, are you a piece of garbage or not because of everything you see in context?
5: Yeah, which kind of loops back to the uh, the way that the movie kind of plays out. Like, is Diane inherently evil um because of what she did or uh, is she kind of justified in it?
4: I think she's just extremely just emotional about everything and she lets that cloud her head because it's very obvious that she doesn't really want Camilla to die. She's she's very reluctant in putting out this hit on her. And yeah, a lot of that is reflected in the more dream sequences throughout the movie, you know, especially with the incompetence of the hitman when we first see him. I mean, she really really wants to believe that that he's so incompetent that he would just totally bungle the hit. And in, in a way, the the first time we see Rita slash Camilla, she's in the limousine and they're about to the, the hitman's about to shoot him or shoot her, excuse me. And then you have the car accident just come out of nowhere and just waylay them. That that's Diane actually really wishing that and hoping that this hitman will fail.
1: Yeah. That, the whole dream is set up and, and Rita as a character is, you know, essentially Camilla had the, the hit failed. And so you, you kind of get this regret in her character. So is Diane evil? No. I mean, is there really a, such a thing as an evil person, <clears throat> Donald Trump? <laughs>
4: oh, wow. We're going there now, huh? <laughs> God, damn
1: but it. you know, yeah. You know, is there such thing as an evil person or, you know, and, and, Or is it fully justified? No, of course not. But you put yourself in her shoes and you understand the feelings that brought her to that point and you understand the regret. And this, the entire, you know, three-fourths of the movie is her fantasy vision of... And it's interesting that she even separate Camilla into two different people. That's what I thought was cool is you have Rita who is the person that she's attracted to, the person that she loves, the person who looks like her and who survives the hit and has a completely is a brand new person who has no recollection of who she is. And then there is the person who the, takes Camilla's name, who is put in the position of getting the lead actress part through nefarious means, through conspiracy, because this is all wishful thinking on Diane's part. And and that's actually the girl that Camilla was kissing. And she has Camilla's name. And so it's interesting that her brain separates those two things. And, and she does a lot of that. Her brain does a lot of making things out to be different and, and putting this reality that doesn't exist. And sh- she continually reminds herself. Her mind also fights back and continually puts the guilt back onto her at several points throughout the movie.
4: Yeah, and what's interesting about that is when you, w- after they uh, see the, uh, the body in Diane Selwyn's apartment, Betty fashions a blonde wig for Rita. So, I mean, it's kind of yeah, bringing it back all together and everything. That's before the scene at Club Silencio, which to me is my favorite part of that entire movie is Club Silencio. Robert, what did you think when you saw Club Silencio? And what do you think of the performers and what they represent?
2: A lot of golden age Hollywood, right?
4: Oh, definitely.
2: You know, yeah, they were bringing back the old golden age, which was like 1920 to 1960s. Yeah. Right?
4: And that's kind of reflected in Club Silencio, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of has that vibe of an old school club like you'd see in the old
2: movies. Like the old 50s, like... Kind of like you're watching Hollywood Land with Ben Affleck, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Playing Christopher Reeves. Yeah.
3: Hey, hey, guys. Yeah. Okay, look, I got to do, and this is just me. Can we just do an age check
4: right now? Age check? I'm 38.
3: Wait, wait, you are?
2: Yeah, I am. I'm um, 24 years old. <laughs> you are not 24. Shut up, dude. No, you are <laughs> My aren't. character is 24 years old. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, Robert's 31. I'm uh I'm 25.
3: Hey, hey, hey youngins. Dude, hey you're hey older little ones. Hey, people way below my age grade. Except for one. <laughs> Except for one. Like, but y'all are pretty look, I am a Mature 37. <laughs>
4: oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh.
3: And I don't mean no disrespect, but like I grew up on Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. Yeah. Are you? I'm all sucked into Did you slurp that up with a spoon? Because I did.
2: it was been
1: a long time since I saw that. I actually was pretty young when I saw that.
3: Are you saying that it does not shape you?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Interview with the Vampire was my first R-rated. My mom snuck me into (laughs) that. I think so, yeah. I think that was my first R-rated movie, too.
3: (laughs) There ain't nothing wrong with that, but if you did not gaze upon Antonio Vanderas' visage and be like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like. Tom the do you know what i'm talking about though like how did that affect you in 2001 if it didn't affect you like i don't even know what? when that came out
2: like <laughs> 1990s. it was the 90s 94 it had
3: 90s. Been no later than 98 right
2: it was early uh 94 i think right? yeah it was, it was roughly mid 90s when that came out same time as the crew. oh
3: well, the,
1: the, if it's 94, the movie is actually older than me, but I remember I remember seeing it young. Dude, my
2: Impreza is older than you, bro. Oh. <laughs> so,
3: but, but look, when dudes w- entered the Teatre, I
2: have Space you will. Jam underwear older than you. Oh,
3: no. <laughs> <laughs> I got a whole story about Space Jam if you want to, but we don't have to go there. What we're talking about right now okay. is Teatro de Vampire, and I'm. Mm. Sh- sure that I'm saying that wrong. But when the ladies entered the uh, Café de Silencio, I was like, oh, we are no longer literal. You had to know that because like, you're like, this doesn't make any, ooh, they're all crying so hard. And as much as I, as me and Lydia and maybe Jenna understand male experience like you gotta cry if something pulls at your tug strings right
4: yeah definitely
3: but like the fact that they're all weeping as she sings like a Spanish rendition
5: of crying by Roy Orbison I'm
3: crying crying Ooh, yeah, crying that's a great song. out of context it does not make me feel that way <laughs>
4: Well, the context of that scene, at least in the more accepted theory, is that is where the dream is starting to really break down and reality is trying to assert itself. I mean, and, and, and that's why the host there, he's saying no high banda, no high orchestra. There is no band. This is all a tape. It's all. illusion. It's trying to really implore to Diane that, look, you got to wake up and deal with this shit. It's just an illusion. Really? Yeah. But when you're the
1: audience watching this for the first time, it's starting to break down on you and you don't understand what's going on. And And that scene confuses you so much until you look at it in retrospect,
4: you know. Well, I would argue that the first time you see it, you're you're probably supposed to kind of be in Betty and Rita's shoes. Like you're pretty much in the same yeah. boat with her. I mean, they, they don't know why they're there. All they know is that Rita implored them to go there. And it's really just coming to the end of their journey in in, in the so-called dream world.
5: Yeah, I, I would agree with that because. Like, I mean, it's just kind of like very obvious that not, not just because of the fact that they're saying that this doesn't exist, but because of the fact that it's like, you know, two in the morning and this club is still coming up, but, right. But the performances are also very like stilted and exaggerated. And the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, this is someone's weird performance art piece. (laughs) And it just is like, it very much takes you out of the reality of it. Though on second viewing the the first like i guess part the first three-fourths of the movie is pretty it's already pretty like fabricated as far as like other other like the latter half goes so it's like you kind of see that more in clarity and everything and i don't know like i i guess like I've never listened to the lyrics of "Crying" by Roy Orbison, but it's essentially about like, like kind of breaking away from someone that you care deeply about, right? Oh, the touch yeah. of your hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it it just feels a little bit like obvious that they're crying at a at a song that's uh, crying. you okay between
3: you and me and a sob story. <laughs> I will leave you at that well and you can drown there because (laughs) I cannot stand a sob story because you cannot subside on salt water. You know what I'm saying? So, as much as I was like, hey, Jen, I know this song. Oh, the touch of your hair and crying over you, I'm just like crying. When I could not figure out the lyrics because they were in Spanish, I was like, that is what it is.
4: Well, the funny thing about the Spanish is like going back to the regular dream theory. It's literally because she momentarily heard Spanish at the restaurant uh, where Mm -hmm. she was dining with Adam and Camilla. I think it's literally just that arbitrary. I mean, as
3: far as they could tell, it was accurate. And let us not air on the side of like not any of us
5: knowing spanish <laughs> See, oh, now we man. watch this and we watch this on hbo max and in the captions it says it's italian okay but really? here's what happens is
3: the the captions say this is in english this is in spanish uh-huh. this is in french and this is in italian and so there are Four other languages. And let me just... They're
5: all based in Latin, by the way. That is a romantic... That's something, then. That's a
3: romantic language. You can just take that to you, wherever you need to go. But hey, Lynch, as far as you're hearing my voice, and you won't, but here's where Child of God, just because you include non-English languages in your film? You are no deeper than a kiddie pool. Yeah, that's (laughs) fair enough. The end, Lynch, Take that where you need to go.
4: Yeah, Lynch has always had really idiosyncratic music choices in his movies, but...
1: You you have something interesting in the itinerary that I guess we haven't touched on yet, but you, you had mentioned how the state of the industry regarding how it treats actresses
4: Yeah, I feel like there was a real commentary there, more or less, because, I mean, it's very obvious what is happening with Camilla and Adam. I mean, she kind of went ahead and played that whole, you know, casting couch scenario to her own benefit. But, I mean, I kind of feel like it really injects a very cynical view of that. And also, very rightly so, you know, calling out the exploitation behind all of that. Because, I mean, it it is a system where, you know, someone like Diane could, you know, she just doesn't really pop. She doesn't really assert herself. She doesn't really move forward as an actress. But someone like Camilla does. It's like, I mean, what's the real difference there? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it does say that that is wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And it definitely takes a very negative approach to that sort of thing.
2: See, when they, when they pick an actor or an actress, you're on a top list of like four or five. Yeah. You know, and they already know who they want their star to be because of scheduling. This is the so.
1: girl. This yeah.
2: is the girl. Yeah. You say the word actor because the word actress is nonsensible. It's the actor's job. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um what was I going with that?
3: <laughs> Look, if you need somebody to lead you into the land of a man writing a lady's lesbian relationship, let me jump on the front of that wagon and let's go into some shit we don't know.
4: Exactly. It's It's very, very obvious that, you know, Lynch doesn't know how to write a lesbian relationship.
3: I was super excited. I was like, oh, no, they're going to do it. And then me, as a person who has been described as queer adjacent, was like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Okay, girl, you got into bed naked. Let's see what you got naked, too. Hey, girl, what's up? My name is Naomi. Let's get her top up. (laughs) I was like super down. And I know that it's not like super B.C. to like jump into sex scenes about stuff, but like. They did stuff and said stuff that I was like, no one would say or do any of that. Let's hold this too long. Let's say this too much. She said, I love you. And then she like did some stuff and then she was like, no, I love you. (laughs) You don't gotta say it twice. She heard it once. Ladies heard it once.
4: Jesus Christ. Yeah! Yes! Yeah!
3: If Jesus was there, he would be like, mm, you only got to say it once. We heard you, bro. I got
6: you. You know what i
0: Yeah. It's almost like, so just reviewed Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and this reminds me, this whole conversation reminds me of the point of you, gun Like, you don't have to tell me twice. I'm already a woman.
6: (laughs) Ah, Trillion,
3: you hear my heart. You hear me. Trillion, you hear me.
0: I do think that there is a little bit of, maybe not so much in the actual love scenes, but Lynch is trying to expose some of what the glamour is really gilded. It's not real gold in Hollywood.
3: I will give Lynch points for giving non-sexy sexiness to women in this if you looked at it, in the total of the film like the sad sad how did I say it Lydia L- oh the Sad sturbation. Oh, yeah
4: That's, oh yeah oh man
3: yeah like you can't help but feel sad for her but you're like girl I get you you need some dopamine you need to forget mm-hmm. some stuff you gotta get on with your day you know
4: yeah totally
3: <laughs> like applaud, applaud to him for having that in his film but like there's not a lot of sexy in this total film that i super agree with the audition scene yeah you want to pick it apart because it makes my whole body hurt
4: yeah it, it is more or less meant to show diane's feelings toward the hollywood industry that just keeps on telling her no essentially that's the way that I see that, because look at how the director is portrayed in that scene. I mean, he's practically yeah. kind of uncaring, and it, it kind of feels like, you know, her performance just kind of went straight over his head, just completely. Okay,
3: wait, 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 there's the, uh, what's the guy with the pot belly and the mustache? And you know what part of my brain is? Oh. Super Mario. Not, yeah, I don't know if he's Super Mario, but Bob he's Goskins He's on the left side of the screen during most of this this scene. Oh yeah,
5: he's he, but it's in the scene he's like the director
3: and he's the one who dismisses it overall. He's like, "Well, that was humanistic
5: okay. and long long-leaning and whatever the
3: hell," right? Right. But then there's Pervert who does the scene with her, <laughs> and then there's like guy on the polo and the button-up who's like super down, and then there's like the uh, like the discount Chanel and her boss, who was the redhead who was mm-hmm. married to dude for like ten years, right. and then there's like girl who's making out with the Ron Howard type, <laughs> <laughs> and then like dude, like dude is like, give me the clue. I want to do the scene close up, and she's like, I don't know. He's like, Yeah, no, I want to be really close up about it. And mm-hmm. then look, like they do the
5: creepest scene I've ever seen in my whole life. He, he was also like, "I'm, I'm not just acting. I'm not acting. I'm reacting, like putting it all back onto the to the women that he's been auditioning." I'm not with. acting. Yeah, I'm yeah.
3: reacting. Should be the number one reason you cut anyone from your script.
1: <laughs> well, and there's the social commentary in the film, and and actually, from Diane's perspective, is you know she sees what she has to go through in order to make her way up. Yeah, you know, and what she yeah. has to put up with, and and yeah. that's very present.
3: I agree. The difference between how she carries out the scene in the kitchen with Rita and how she carries out the scene with D-Bag McQuaid, not related, (laughs) not related to any other McQuaids, like she, I mean, admitted that. The scene is transformed and it's much better, but like the fact that she guides his hand onto her hip, mm-hmm. the second that happened, I signed out. I was like, mm, I don't have the emotional space for this. I have not have to talk to any of you people ever again. And I did not check in again. Even though we watched it twice, I did not come back in un- until we were in the hallway.
5: Okay, so I just want to say something about this scene because it was something that really kind of, you know, bothered me. In the context of the scene, Naomi, uh, sorry, Betty's character do it. is ultimately angry about her dad's friend. And then being in a sexual relationship, and it kind of makes me wonder. Like, I mean, the fact that she talks about like bringing the police involved, it's like, so was she underage when they had this relationship? I one hundred percent she was. And that was like, that's what really took me out of the scene, especially since they kind of like, I mean, when they're playing it up, when it's just Betty and Rita playing it up, it's so like cheesy and it's so like you know, I'm gonna kill you. But this then it doesn't matter at all in the kitchen. But in the actual moment, it's completely different. And it's they played put, like, mouth in, this, on mouth, in, like this, it. in this one, in this, in this very, in this dream sequence mm-hmm. that it seems so like uh, flighty and the dialogue just feels so, you know, like played up like it's this like 1940s film. There is this, it's like, this is the one moment where it feels like that facade drops and it's played so straight and so serious. You want to know what I say, Lydia? Feel free. Between you
3: and the gentle persons or gentities, if we will, in the room.
6: Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
4: It's
3: wet, wet. And that's very, very gross.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, One I more. agree on that. I mean, every there's just so many things that are unsettling about that particular scene. I mean, because first, everybody is just so friendly, you know, they seem so inviting. But then when they actually get into the gist of the scene and say that,
3: again. that girl with the black
4: hair, we played it super close. I want to do that again.
3: You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ugh, gross.
5: Also, at the very end of it, when they're walking out of the library, uh, or I'm sorry, out of the library, uh, to the, towards the elevator, David Lynch l- literally writes a line where a woman says, you know, oh, just sometimes we're catty, you know? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. we're not talking yeah. shit. As look, as
3: you, I, and everyone else within earshot knows that when you step outside of man- management's ears, mm-hmm. sometimes you say some shit. And you gotta, because otherwise your brain would melt and your skin would fall off your bones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so she's like, uh, oh, sometimes we are just catty, but it's like, no, you gotta talk some shit." hmm yeah.
1: You remember like- the, way the three of us would do that, guys? <laughs> <laughs>
3: you gonna tell it. me that you do it? Give me your top three.
1: Well, we all all used to all work used at the work same at the store. store.
3: Okay. Yeah.
1: And and so like we just had. Just the worst experience with management there. It's just this. Give me know,
3: number one.
1: <laughs> too many to count.
3: Three and there, how many of you? Come on, give me one.
4: Uh, yeah, probably an incident that involves some cigarettes that were kind of misplaced. misplaced? Yeah, it yeah. it led to a little bit of a scene. I would say. And I mean, I, I got sent home.
2: <laughs> and I got yelled at because yeah. I probably don't know how to read an inventory list. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> it's still some pretty fresh wounds right there, honestly.
2: But sorry, if, if so we didn't sorry. all at the same store, this podcast probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So there's that's that, that's the
4: silver lining there.
2: Yeah, but I'm making twice as much now
1: and yeah. I am enjoying my job a hell of a lot more. So fuck that place.
4: Okay,
3: like, look, 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 we can go back to the movie. Where yeah. were we at in terms of, like, metaphoric dream endings? Because this movie is not okay. <laughs> like, if we were to check in on this movie in, like, a care facility, we would be like, this movie is
4: not Okay. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, th- the ending, It. I mean, her suicide is pretty much foreshadowed throughout the entirety of the movie. Like, I mean, especially what precipitates that suicide. Like, for instance, what the tramp behind uh, Winkies represents, like, that's failure right there. I think it's like right after she commits suicide, we see him again. And he's just kind of sitting there with the blue box, and it just kind of shows how that failure just kind of came full circle.
3: Did you not feel like the grandma and grandpa danced out of that plastic paper bag oh, like yeah. the brownies from Evil Dead oh, Army of Darkness?
4: Oh, it totally like that. Yeah, it totally feels like the little ashes that pop up uh, in the middle of that movie. <laughs> it kind of <has, laughs> especially that jerky looking... Head. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> tangents, we're good.
3: Sorry, <laughs> that's a cheap blow but my god did you not feel
4: it i did yeah i agree Certainly. okay but then
3: like we like we like landslide into the ending don't we
4: a little bit yeah it does kind of hit you like a brick wall a little bit you know but i mean it it's exactly the type of ending i would expect for a story like this you know, I mean, it's it's a very Hollywood ending, definitely. Once again, evoking, you know, just the aura of Hollywood and the industry overall, I mean, yeah, in many ways it can be a little bit of a meat grinder. Yeah,
2: the yeah. Hollywood's, Hollywood is a lot different than independent films in like New York or whatever too. Yeah.
7: It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh boy see what I mean? <laughs> OK. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, <clears throat> it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this. (laughs) Except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are and... Then I realize what it is. (laughs) There's a man... in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream.
4: But anyway, I think that this is probably a good point to go ahead and start wrapping things up. I'm gonna go ahead and pass on to the ladies at Shock and Applaud. What are your final thoughts on this movie? I guess we can go ahead and start with Nomi.
3: Hey, look, we at Shocked and Applaud because we both a revere and decry so much. I would say that the thing that I applaud the most, the thing that I love the most is the, I think the visual consistency, the fact that they thought about bringing in the, it's not the girl with the pearl earring, but like the lady who had an earring that was very much like pearl and not like, Continued itself through. Like, as much as I would like to scream about how all of the women in the art in the backgrounds of the film were like super depressed or hiding behind glamour, was very much how I would view going into mm, the Hollywood atmosphere. I'm gonna steal one from Jen and she can yell at me in a minute, but the plot is second to the themes and the characters of this film. Like we are presented with so many beautiful visuals and we are presented with so many situations that are relatable to, if not ourselves, then situations that we see so many different characters going into that we can set that all aside and we have to watch the film Said, and this is probably why Roger Ebert was like, this is a four out of four film for me because, ha, ha, ha. I don't know why he sounds like Mickey Mouse.
6: <laughs>
3: <laughs> he's like, this film is amazing and worth thinking about after you've watched it. Uh, and that is because the themes and the characters are so very, very strong, but that you can watch it and watch it again and then really kind of digest it afterwards and and as someone who has done that to no less than 20 films I sit and think about the thing that I've watched and maybe put a far too much thought into it and I would like to caveat that with the fact that I've watched and reviewed Earth Girls for easy
4: (laughs) oh wow
3: so, like, no banners
5: there. Let's pass it off to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, like, if if this movie is fully interpretable and there isn't anything and this was just sort of like David Lynch's uh, way of doing like a Blake slate that anybody could see it, it's a Rorschach test. This is David Lynch's
2: Rorschach test. Let's just say that that's what he was going for. Yeah, I guess you interpret it the way you want, right? Yeah.
5: Right. So I would almost think that Hollywood feels like this weird mix of art, logistics, and politics, because you're trying to make something that is subjective. There's a lot of layers that go into it, and that's where the logistics kind of come in. You have to like plan things out, because if things aren't planned out, then it just looks a little bit off but there's also politics with the fact that the people who are in you know the who are in control of all of that money they maybe want you know the the this one person for for whatever reason coming in and playing a part so
4: excellent yeah great point
0: and uh Jen your final thoughts i would definitely like to see this as a netflix series now that i've said it this, i think this needs to be redone if he, if lynch is going to go ahead and do a like a season three of uh, twin peaks you might as well get into some real tv and so really i'm i'm just hopeful for you know this to be adapted in in other ways and there was also some really maybe some cheeky costume decisions that if you see the costume designer uh, credit in in the credits she's got a signature for for her name instead of it yeah, I saw out. That. And, yeah.
4: Hmm.
0: and it made me think about the costume designs going when we watched it a second time. And if you look at Camilla or actually uh, when she's when she's Rita, she wears a lot of red, which is kind of it could be re- interpreted as sort of the, the scarlet letter. Like she's she's an adulterous woman or she's not very trustful, at least uh, in the perspective of Betty. So there's little, maybe some costume things that I would, if I was going to watch this a third time, I'd probably go in and look at again. Um, This has rewatchability much more than, you know, like Sixth Sense is always talked about as like this big ending movie where you got to rewatch it because of the ending. And I think that's true of this one, even if we all come away with different opinions about it.
4: Yeah, right on. Ash, we'll go ahead and go to you. What are your final thoughts?
1: Okay. So as one of the, you know, the first Lynch films I've seen besides Dune, which I I guess doesn't count as much as, as original work does, I was genuinely surprised. I mean, I knew that I was walking into something that was surrealist. So I like the take of this movie in that most of it doesn't feel as surrealist. It feels very grounded aside from, you know, having these disjointed stream of consciousness type plot. And, And then, you know, by the end you're completely questioning everything and you know like jen was saying earlier it's one of those movies where you really have to watch it again a second time and i feel that you know as, as soon as i watched it i felt that i was like man i need to watch all of this with context and and pay attention to all the little clues and foreshadowing that's everywhere but but yeah no i was genuinely surprised i enjoyed this movie more than i, I probably thought that i would have Um, And it, again, made me interested in, you know, kind of looking into some more of David Lynch's work. So, uh, honestly, it was trippy. Uh,
2: Robert, your final thoughts? You know, I don't think any one of our theories is wrong, but I think it's like a a take of an actor's job going in and out of Hollywood. Because how many people go in and out of Hollywood each year and never make something of themselves? At least 200,000 in and out of, you know? And... You know, that's just a take of what the business is. You know, they want you to be something that you're not. And how many people just, you know, are cut then and there. And, you know, the business is cruel. I mean, and it'll make you do things. I don't know. Yeah.
4: I don't know. It's a pretty classic trope, like, both in real life and in the movies of Hollywood. That's that's the way it goes
2: into the old Hollywood things. like the director wants to be something you're not. The whole industry wants to be something that you're not. But you kind of have to give into it, right, in order to, like, give this image, give this whole persona, you know, and, you know. Yeah, right on.
3: Okay, wait. Okay, so in in the vein of arrogance, and let me just step right in because I will speak on things I know not what. Naomi Watts... Because I care about her because she's my namesake. And also she's the Jet Girl and Tank Girl, which is, I want to be Lori Petty, but I will take Jet Girl in second place. But in 2001-ish, when this whole concept started swirling around the David Lynch universe, Naomi Watts was like on the verge of bankruptcy. She was about to get floor closed on. She was like, I gotta get out of Hollywood. And then chick who was married to, oh no, a whole second. You don't see how flawed my brain is. And it's super sad, but a Scientology guy, Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Yeah, we got there guys. Motherfucker. (laughs) Okay. Sorry for the, to edit that okay Nicole Kidman was like hey girl you gotta hold on until the release of this movie and she was like okay (laughs) (laughs) and then she did and then she became like Hollywood like what is she she's not necessarily a list but she's like B plus B plus plus she proved herself probably with this film and uh, that in and of itself is something to be commended I just wanted to put up there.
4: Yeah, yeah, that that is definitely a good point. Naomi Watts is absolutely wonderful in this movie, and honestly, I, I wish that she would get more work. I mean, she was great in the Funny Games remake. So the Ring. The Ring. And yeah. King Kong with Jack Black. So. Yeah, yeah, she she was good. It, it would be good to see her get some more roles, but.
3: <laughs> I like that you comment her as gorilla bait.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Uh, My final thoughts, I mean, no matter what interpretation you approach this movie from, whether it's from the consensus theory or whatever, I feel like I I, I get the whole thoughts about maybe, you know, it, it being disjointed and that it would make more sense as a TV show and whatnot. But, I mean, I think that as far as David Lynch movies are concerned, like in this one, he actually leaves a lot more at least in my view, he leaves a lot more for the viewer to really latch onto as far as the meaning and everything. And in many ways, he kind of spells it out in this movie, which you don't really see in like lost highway or definitely not inland empire. Like that, that, that's a whole nother can of worms. But I feel like, you know, this movie is actually also very entertaining in its own right. As entertaining as a David Lynch movie can be. So, I mean, I I feel like it's an essential movie. Like, you can get it on the Criterion Collection, or even if you just find it just the regular DVD release, I recommend watching this movie and just going into it, you know, expecting something a little both less abstract and more abstract at the same time somehow. It's definitely, like I said before, and I'll say it again, it's his most accessible work outside of maybe Blue Velvet or The Elephant Man. So I personally recommend it, even with the flaws that were brought up uh, during the show. There's still a lot that I can take from this movie.
3: You know what the whole deal about Shocked and Applaud is that you can find something abhorable about a film and still find something fantastic about it. Yeah. And that's that's not wrong. Like you don't have to only go base your viewing on merit. You can base it on aberration. <laughs>
6: that's
3: true. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, we'll go ahead and let y'all uh, plug your show. Where can we find Shocked and Applaud?
0: You can find us on Twitter at Shocked Applaud. That is also our handle on Instagram. You can also read this on our Facebook page at Shocked and Applaud or Gmail, ShockedandApplaud at gmail.com. Excellent. Also, I should mention that we do have a Patreon, which uh, is only a dollar a month, and we uh, just search for Shocked and Applaud on Patreon, and you, sh- you should find it there. We also have shockedandapplaud.com, which has all of our links and access to whatever podcast channel you're looking
3: for. Woo-woo, Jen, good job.
0: Excellent.
4: Ash, go ahead and plug Collateral Gaming. What's in the, What's in the what works, works for
2: Collateral yeah. Gaming?
1: Hell yeah! Well, if you love Collateral Cinema. If you enjoy listening to us and you also love video games, you'll enjoy Collateral Gaming. Uh, We actually just got out our... We were a little late on it, unfortunately, but we we got out our holiday special on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and then our next episode's going to be Ghost of Tsushima... And I am super excited about that. And then afterwards, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Typically, we do more uh, narrative-based games, games with stories that we have, you know, kind of something to talk about. And we're going to talk about, you know, one of our first multiplayer games, and that's going to be Apex Legends, uh, recommended by my co-host, Zach. So that's going to be exciting. Definitely stoked to be talking about that, especially Ghost of Tsushima, because it has been an amazing journey. You can find us wherever you listen to Collateral Cinema. And uh, we also do have a Patreon where we release our Let's Play video game commentaries.
2: Excellent. And, uh, Robert, you want to plug anything? Yeah, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and uh, look for Killing Night and some of my latest mechanic videos that should be uploaded. Right on. And
4: you can find Collateral Cinema on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Chill Lover Radio. Uh, You can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a Patreon. Our tiers start at $1. Check us out there. And also, Check out our next upcoming anniversary episode, which is our Miku anniversary. Once again, we're going back to Takashi Mike. Oh man! And we are going to be getting into Gozu. You
2: got to bring your brother back for this one.
4: Yeah, you do. We, we, yeah, I, I want to break. It. I want to break Dakota a little more. <laughs> I want to break his the psyche. last the
1: last Miku episode broke him.
4: <laughs> yeah, we, we did. Visitor oh, two. Yeah, but look for that, and I guess we'll go ahead and end right there. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortego.
1: I'm Ashley Chancellor.
3: Hey, this is Lydia, Jen, and Naomi. A shocked and applaud, and we always end like this.
6: Yay! Yay! Yay!
4: Also, Collateral Cinema is out, ladies and gentlemen. We are Collateral Cinema. Thank you, Shocked and Applaud, for being on the show. We will see you again very soon. Laters.